Welcome to the Center for New American Security's National Security Startups podcast series, hosted by Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program, Ben Fitzgerald. Welcome to our National Security Startups podcast. We're here with Steve Nordland, who's the Vice President for Strategy at Boeing Defense. And today we're going to talk about in situ, the makers of the well-known Scan Eagle uh, drone or remotely piloted aircraft, as the as, as as the case may be, depending on your terminology. Now, interestingly, Steve actually joins us from joins Boeing from the in situ side of things. Steve, welcome. Hey, thanks, Ben. I'm glad to be here. So uh, let's just jump straight into our conversation. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about in situ to get us started? Yeah, in situ actually was uh, incorporated way back in 1994 by a gentleman by the name of Tad McGear. Um, he originally developed, uh, started developing what he called at the time MRAs, uh, miniature robotic aircraft. So that terminology never really caught on like UAVs <laughs> or drones. Uh, and from 1994 um, until uh, 1998, he did a lot of development. His first development was on an airplane called the Aerosan. And the Aerosan was the first UAV to cross the Atlantic. It did it in 27 hours on a gallon and a half of gas. So amazing record. In fact, there was a lot of competition going on back then between uh, Global Hawk and uh, Aerosan, on which would be the first UAV to cross the Atlantic, and, oh. and Aerosan ended up winning. Then after learning from that, he converted to the next platform, uh, which was called C-Scan, and was focused on the commercial fishing market. And that's when myself and Steve Sliwa, who became the CEO of the company, started to get involved. So, as I understand it, um, in situ started out, therefore, as, as largely a commercial organization, correctly? It did. Um, when, when Steve and I got involved, um, it was basically funded um, you know, as a bootstrapped, uh, family-invested type company. And uh, we started to engage and saw some of the capabilities that the platform could provide. Um, not just a commercial fishing, but beyond. Our, our particular interest was technology innovation in aerospace, not necessarily defense, mm -hmm. but just in the aerospace marketplace and the capabilities that it could provide. And that got us uh, first engaged. And so Steve actually engaged first and kickstarted the company um, in 2001 or so. Um, in fact, I got a great uh, document that I keep in my office even to this day uh, on my coffee table. And it was a, a presentation that we made to Boeing in uh, September 10th of 2001. Oh, interesting. Where we were out talking to Boeing about maybe making making a strategic investment in this small company mm -hmm. uh, that had miniature robotic aircraft. And it was actually a very good meeting, except for things changed the next day. And we'll probably get into that more as we talk about today. That's right. So, so this begs the question then, how, how did um, a startup from Washington State that was focused primarily on maritime domain technology get into the defense business? Yeah, the the uh, the start on the commercial side. Uh, some uh, friends of Tad uh, were looking, came from the fishing industry, and they were looking at how helicopters were not being used on fishing vessels anymore. It turns out helicopters used to be used to go out and do fish spotting, huh. and so major commercial. Uh, fishermen would go out and launch helicopters from from their vessels and to go out and do fish spotting but because of the accident rates and other issues um, their insurance companies were frowning upon that type of activity and so that's where the innovation came from the and these two gentlemen contacted tad and said hey we could use a miniature robotic aircraft and that kind of launched the business in this commercial 
direction of if you had a long endurance eye in the sky uh, of an airplane, what purpose could it have? And it could have purposes environmentally. It could have purposes with the long endurance to go out and do weather collection, which is where the, actually the name in situ came from, oh, collection okay. in place. Okay. Uh, and it could have other uh, attributes, firefighting, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's really what got us started. So when we started developing C-SCAN, which um, really is Scan Eagle. We had a name change for the military, a branding change, if you will. It was really commercial focused. And so uh, the aircraft itself was focused on the commercial market, as well as as we developed the airplane, it was all made out of commercial materials and mm -hmm. commercial articles. Even the sensor uh, was done, uh, the, the heart of it was a Sony camcorder uh, uh, camera. And so it was very commercial oriented. And then of course, 9-11 um, happened and that kind of changed the traje trajectory. So we understand therefore that the key to innovation getting into the military space is going with a, a vicious sounding animal, like an eagle <laughs> or something or other. You can't say just see scanners go scan eagle, I understand. There had to be some patriotic mood to it yeah, as well. Totally reasonable, yeah. innovation in branding. Um, now I understand though that also one, one of the, the core um, pivots for you guys was that the State Department came to visit and talk to you about ITAR. Yeah, actually, we uh, we were very uh, progressive, I think, f out of compared to most companies uh, in that, you know, we engaged uh, companies, con consultants, if you will, early on on guidance with regard to U.S. regulations. I think that's one thing that catches uh, startups that are looking to maybe innovate in this space um, a little bit off guard mm. in that um, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And so what is the regulatory uh, stance on uh, on export on other areas, so we we tried to educate ourselves on it. Of course, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about throughout the day today our relationship with Boeing. That was clearly a, an advantage that we had in our partnership with Boeing, where they could help guide us along those lines. Um, but uh, we we actually made some filings for the product, and we're looking for to utilize it from a commercial. Uh, aspect, but the government really was challenged in that overall ruling. There was quite a, a debate, if you will, between State Department, Commerce Department, uh, about who should have jurisdiction. And um, it took a long time. It actually took several years before a, a ruling came. And in the meantime, we had to continue on with business. Yeah. Uh, so um, because our business started to take off in the defense side, one thing that we did knowing that is let's follow all of the State Department rules because mm -hmm. that's the least common denominator. And so we, we uh, you know, followed those regulatory rules as we waited for an ultimate ruling. I have a lot of personal experience dealing with running a small startup. I was doing it for, for, for an Australian company and um, I, I was always running into ITAR stuff to include finding out that uh, given we were a small company, we had an email server that we left in Australia. Why would I have different infrastructure here. And we found out that every time I sent an email to someone sitting next to me in yeah. Washington, given that it routed through Australia, that was export. Yeah, you were creating an export. That's right. That's so right. I, I, don't get me started on ITAR. Um, so then you, you mentioned that Boeing was an important partner. 
um, in general, but but helping you deal with some of that regulatory stuff. How did that partnership with Boeing begin, and so how did it progress over time? Yeah, um, when I engaged with the company, uh, we were making. I mean, our revenue was literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time uh, we sold the company uh, to Boeing, six or seven years later, we had built up about a half billion dollars in backlog. So we had tremendous uh, growth. Um, in fact, we were ranked by uh, Inc. Magazine as one of the fastest growing companies in America. I think it was in 2006 that we got ranked. Mm. Um, a number, of, number numerous of entrepreneurship awards. So the company was very, very successful. Um, so we went about it two ways. One is, uh, like most startups, we went out and, and raised uh, venture capital. Um, Second Avenue Partners in Seattle mm-hmm. uh, are like uh, Power Angel investors mm-hmm. and uh, and two partners from there, uh, both Pete Higgins and Nick Hanauer, were lead investors for us um, early on, and uh, we're just and by the way, just tremendous businessmen. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete had a history uh, at Microsoft, and uh, Nick Hanauer had, had a, a number of businesses, but his probably more well known claim to fame is he was one of the early investors in Amazon. Okay. And so they just brought an incredible amount of insight and, and, and business acumen to everything that, that we did. So they were fan- fantastic board members. Uh, and then later on, we, um, we in our future series, uh, we got more uh, mezzanine-level financing, if you will. Battery Ventures entered enter into the scene. I yep. think it was in our Series C. Uh, so that was all going on in getting the capital necessary to build the business, which... Uh, for um, an aerospace startup, mm-hmm. you've got to have capital yeah. more so than uh, other startups that are more software oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to have tooling. We have to create a production line. Right. And so a little bit more capital intense. The inventory holds that we had were much more significant than you would find in most, uh, most startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the second side of it, we had entered into a, uh, a teaming relationship with the Boeing company, which was very unique. Uh, we had a multi-year uh, teaming arrangement mm-hmm. where we would work exclusively with the defense customer through Boeing. Mm-hmm. And so from a from a in-situ viewpoint, mm-hmm. that was access to market. Yep. And, um, and we did really well there. I mean, uh, Boeing, like uh, many other companies, having a, a large footprint, uh, just not here in the U.S., but around the globe. Yep. Uh, and then at the same time, what Boeing got out of it was a new capability mm-hmm. uh, into their portfolio. And it's not as much for Boeing about the the actual um, low-cost airplane that we produced. Mm-hmm. It was also about the low-cost node in the network that it created. Yeah. So here's this long-endurance UAV that could be launched from a, a ship and recovered or launched uh, in an austere environment with no runway requirement uh, that we could go and, and deploy. And for them, it was a low-cost node in the overall battlefield network. Yep. And they could innovate around that, mm-hmm. and we could innovate around the ecosystem of the platform, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, it was really a nice uh, 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 marriage, if you will, between the two of us. Uh, we kept the independence of our company through a teaming agreement, mm-hmm. so um, uh, our board of directors, you know, stayed fully intact during all of this. And um, and interestingly enough, um, they made investments in us around uh, R&D that we could do together, um, other areas of investment. And so as we were getting some investment from 
the VC community, we we're also getting an investment from from Boeing. So we almost got a, a doubling of our of our capital power, if you will, through the teaming arrangement that we had with Boeing. So it's fascinating the way that all of those things come together in these types of, of relationship where you've got um, military utility that you're providing to um, for deployed um, service personnel. Then there's also the, the, the business side of that in terms of the capital for the organization, but also the go-to-market model. Uh, so so it's, it's important, I think, for us all to understand how those things come together, because we're not going to get the type of innovation that the DoD needs unless we're able to think about all of those things at the same time and craft solutions. Um, so th this is a great story. Um, in terms of some of that go-to-market and access to the customers that you were talking about, were that, was, was Boeing then therefore in a position to help in situ uh, do contracting, that kind of stuff, that was existing contract vehicles that they used? How did that sort of work out? Yeah, I think two things that happened. One, yes, they, they helped uh, certainly from the business standpoint, from a contracting standpoint, and, and doing direct contracting with the government. Um, and then I think we both learned from each other. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, uh, Boeing, you know, learned some unique ways that we, uh, you know, use our business practices and how we uh, would invest our, our scarce resources, um, how we would innovate, um, how they innovated, and we could compare notes on that. And then um, um, at the same time, uh, you know, they had the more formal role of dealing with the U.S. government, so we got to learn a lot. Again, I mentioned earlier about export. Um, you can only get so smart about export, but you know, if you're a company like Boeing that has been into it, not just from a military standpoint, but from a commercial standpoint with Boeing commercial aircraft yeah. for, you know, you know, deck well over a hundred year anniversary coming up now. So over a hundred years, yeah. uh, uh, you know, that is just depth and breadth that you can't buy as a startup. Right. right? And so there really is a, um, a match made in heaven, if you will, when you can get the right, uh, alignment and chemistry between the company that has that depth and breadth and the company that is coming on uh, with some agility and some new ways and some new thinking uh, around innovation mm. and combine those together. And I think that's very powerful. And, and I'd also say from a customer standpoint, because the DOD customer is complex, right? You yeah. have uh, the program office, you have the acquisition arm, you have Congress, you have um, the the combatant commanders. Uh, you have, and and then at the pointy end of the spear, you have the actual warfighter. And everybody looks at it a little bit differently. Yep. And so, um, you know, I can remember being in the office of, uh, you know, at very high levels, let's say in the U.S. Marine Corps, mm -hmm. and you know, co uh, meeting with us, you know, at in situ and our Boeing colleagues right in the seat next to us. It gave that that combatant commander that sense of 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 security if you will knowing that here's this small company that may only have like 30 people in it yep. but sitting right next to them is the boeing company right and so um so that risk from a combatant commander standpoint is a lot less now the acquisition community community might look at it differently congress might look at it differently right. everybody has their own views and of course the warfighter all they care about is reliability and making sure everything works and that it's there at the right time in the right place. 
And when you combine those two together, the small company and the large company, nobody can deliver that better than those two combinations. It, yeah, it's fantastic. And, and one of the things that we want to talk through um, in this entire podcast series is exactly that. What is the different value that startups, that major defense industry, and that the Department of Defense give and get as part of this broader ecosystem? And so this is a fantastic story about that. One of the interesting things that I'd like to explore for a minute is what that's meant for the actual ScanEagle platform. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I had, I'd sort of realized but not really thought about is that it's never been a program of record. Yes. So I'd just be interested in your thoughts about how that's happened. I mean, it, it's an incredibly widely deployed platform mm -hmm. and it's continued to change. I mean, we've just, just seen that you're talking about um, launching and, and, and um, uh, recovering the aircraft from another drone, drones on drones. Um, so just be interested in that sort of not being a program of record and how the technology has involved through that relationship. Yeah, and I can just tell you personally, um, you know, I tell this to my family, is how often in America do you get to go and live the American dream, you know, be part of a startup company that's widely successful, um, you know, starting off with really, we started in an industrial garage mm -hmm. and then ultimately, uh, selling the company to Boeing and that in, a, in itself is, is living the American dream. But when you do it in an area that, you know, your product has gone out and saved thousands of lives mm -hmm. of, of, uh, Marines, soldiers, uh, airmen and sailors, uh, in in our services, um, it's really something special. Yeah. And uh, and if there's one thing that I take away from that is um, all of this blood, sweat, and tears that we put into that, nobody can take away from me. That's right. That's right. Uh, but it's it's really been a great run. Uh, what's really unique about ScanEagle, and I, I bring that up because you mentioned ScanEagle, and I when when you say that, my mind goes back to. Um, August of 2004, which is the first time we actually deployed ScanEagle into the war zone uh, with the U.S. Marine Corps, literally under the under the the guides of a of a science experiment by yep. the by the uh, G9, uh -huh. <laughs> and um, and we got there and started operating. And uh, this past Memorial Day, um, I was at an event where they were recognizing the Battle of Fallujah, and mm -hmm. that's very personal to me um, because. Uh, when we had deployed that August, we were really working up to Scan Eagle's first real mission, mm -hmm. which was the Battle of Fallujah in, in the November timeframe of 2004, where we made an incredible difference um, in that overall uh, operation. And so you think about it, here's um, a bunch of, you know, we were about 30, maybe 40 people at most in the company at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, I think in situ's employment now is up to about 800 people. Yeah. And, uh, we went and deployed with the U S Marine Corps with a lot of help from the Boeing company of hardening everything that needed to be hardened, right. securing everything that needed to be secured. You know, the innovation that Boeing brought to that piece of it that we just didn't know. And then we're innovating around you know, the actual data that we're producing, yeah. you know, through the aircraft to the end user. And, uh, and, and, and then in addition to that, we innovated around a business model mm -hmm. uh, because at this time and even today, not too many people own a Scan Eagle. Yep. What they end up buying is a service. Mm -hmm. And so we innovated the business model to provide a service to our customer. Um, and that took 
both of us. It took uh, in situ and having a little bit more flexibility in some of the things that it could do, you know, how we uh, source things, uh, how we uh, worked our, our end of the finances of it. Uh, but at the same time, when you start to put a services business model together, you got to have the capital to have the inventory. That's right. That's right. And uh, Boeing being on some of those prime contracts, we're able to bring that capital necessary to hold the inventory to perform the services contracts. And what you also got through offering ScanEagle as a service is um, we could innovate together and bring out different capabilities and introduce uh, capabilities when the technology is ready and when it's been proven and not have to necessarily wait for some other approval. That's right. Right. Absolutely. And so there was, there was less bureaucracy in getting capabilities into the hands of the warfighter. And I'll tell you on some occasions we would have, you know, technology turns that, you know, were measured in weeks, not months or years. Yeah. And so the the ability to bring that capability to the battlefield was really kind of amazing. And then every once in a while we would have, you know, like the Marines or the Navy come along and say, hey, we found this sensor, we found mm-hmm. this piece of electronics, can you guys integrate that and get out, out to the battlefield? And we could. Yeah. And it was all through this iteration that we were able to do within the business model. It's fascinating to me that there's nothing more frustrating. And I've lived this myself when you have an end user who wants you to do something. You want to do something as well. Both of you have the the will and the capability. And then the contract does not allow you to do it. You either have to break the law or do something that is ineffective. And it's like, well, that's not a good place to be. And so, again, tying all of these things together is, is critically important. And I think increasingly as we think about the future of unmanned systems and as we move to swarms, um, I don't think that there we, – we can't use the, the sort of platform-centric uh, acquisition model that we've used for larger one-off systems in mm-hmm. the past. Now, Steve, you've, you've used the word innovation pretty frequently um, over the last few minutes, and appropriately so. Um, a lot of the conversation, certainly in Washington these days, about innovation gets tied to Silicon Valley startups mm-hmm. as it relates to technology. So I think with, through no fault of the secretaries, um, he's gone out and, and done a good job in engaging with Silicon Valley. But there's sort of a narrative that's formed about, well, if you want innovation, you go to Silicon Valley. And if you want not innovation, you go to traditional defense industry. Um, this story definitely sort of talks against that. I'd just be interested in your thoughts on how the Department of Defense can get the best of both of those worlds and not have to choose, whether that's through the in-situ example or just more broadly in your experience. Yeah, and I, I think um, I, I, I think that the Secretary's trips have been good to uh, highlight and acknowledge the, the innovation that this country provides. Right. And um, uh, what I often say is innovation can happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, the proof point in that is in situ was 50 miles east of Portland, Oregon, in a small, sleepy lumber town uh, (laughs) and um, in a very rural area that prior to our buildup of the company was really known for logging Mm -hmm. um, and has gone from a hub zone business to you know, having the least amount of employment in the entire state of Washington to, uh, you know, having the highest PhDs per capita now in the little city of Bingen, Washington. <laughs> so there's been a huge transformation. And, and so innovation can happen in, in a lot of places. So mm-hmm. I'm often 
you know, reminded of that. And, and you know, certainly Silicon Valley, uh, the relationship to Silicon Valley and, and Stanford and, um, and the investment community in that part of the country is, is phenomenal mm-hmm. uh, and is one of the reasons why America is what it is today because mm-hmm. of Silicon Valley. And we don't take anything away from that. In fact, uh, want that to continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at what has come out of that part of the country. But I think at the same time, we have to remember that innovation happens everywhere. Uh, I can tell you, you know, from a Boeing perspective, I just look as we come up on our hundred years of anniversary, you know, we, you know, we built the International Space Station. That wasn't done without innovation. Right. Um, we are taking uh, commercial aircraft from, uh, you know, in the 30s per month to the 40s per month. Um, and that doesn't happen without innovation. Mm-hmm. And so it really can happen anywhere. And, um, you know, there's also different areas of where your capabilities are best. Right. And in some areas, um you know, software is the highest is where your capabilities are best, and let's get the innovation from there. And other areas where manufacturing may be your sweet spot. Right. You know, how do we go get the innovations there? But it may not all be in the same geographical space. Yes. And so, um, when we look at it from a Boeing perspective, you know, we we're cognizant of that. And of course, um, it also becomes worldwide uh, in everything that we're doing. So. Um, so I think we, I think it's very good on what uh, the department is doing in recognizing that uh, innovation can come from a lot of places yeah. um, by highlighting Silicon Valley. But I think we have to make sure that we don't get too focused in just one area. One geography that makes sense. So, given the like the, the rich experience that that you personally have had um, on the in situ side and now at Boeing running running the sort of strategy side of things from um, Boeing Defense. How, how do you and Boeing sort of look to the future and think about working with startups today and in the future? Yeah, it's a great time to ask that inside the Boeing company because as we are now looking at our next 100 years, mm-hmm. um, I'm fascinated because I was with a group of our senior tech fellows a few weeks ago out on the West Coast, and uh, there's no lack of imagination of what the art of the possible is right. when it comes to our next our next 100 years. Um, and so we look at that both from an organic standpoint and an inorganic uh, standpoint as well, because um, what we can leverage uh, and fill gaps where there might be some needs that we have, we certainly will do. I think one thing that we're, we're doing is we're reflecting back on this great success that we've had with in situ. I mean, that's a model mm-hmm. that really worked. We brought innovation to the warfighter. We brought an innovative business model. Uh, by the way, we talked about ScanEagle, but at the same time, we developed the uh, Blackjack uh, uh, UAS, which is a programmer record in the Marine Corps uh, right now. And so we've we've innovated in the traditional acquisition sense. Yep. Um, and so um, I think all that is, uh, is real value add. And I think if you can put together the departments uh, from a leadership level, departments need for and desire for how do we how do we get innovation to the warfighter at the right time and right place? And how do we keep the, the, the traditional defense players um, in, engaged in that process? And then be able to, you know, one of the advantages we have as a defense company is we get to go over and turn over lots of rocks. Yeah. Um, and as we're turning over those rocks, and we know 
what the customer's requirements are, what the missions are, what the capabilities are yeah. that are needed. So it allows us to match those up really well. Mm-hmm. And then, um, like with like with ScanEagle, as it comes through the system, there are going to be certain requirements that only the defense department's going to need, whether it's an anti-tamper repa- requirement or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And that's where the that's where the real synergy I think is created between all of the players. That makes a lot of sense. So I have one one last question I was just thinking about as we were talking through here. What advice would you have for um, anyone who's out there running a startup right now um, that is either just starting to work with the Department of Defense or is has been doing that for a little while? How would you suggest that they reach out to defense industry and, and how would they be a good partner to those organizations? Yeah, um, so one, one thing that I think led to our success at In-Situ is we didn't chase everything. And that's really hard as a startup because you're trying to create that cash flow. And there were things that we, we ended up saying no to mm-hmm. um, because then you become, you know, uh, dependent on, on the sources that, you know, select you and as, a, as opposed to driving your own destiny. Yep. And so I think we were very disciplined along those lines of, of staying where we want to go and didn't diversify too soon. We, you know, we, we rode the Scan Eagle um, capability for a long time into the, into the overall business. Um, and so um, uh, that's the one piece of advice. I think connecting to uh, the defense industry, we're out at um, trade shows mm-hmm. and we end up uh, going to um, events that are held by the investment bankers yep. and other uh, firms out there to connect with companies that um, uh, that we feel may be able to provide some value to us, um, as well as get some unsolicited uh, inquiries. And so I think it's important to know, you know, to do your own research of, you know, where the customer has their pain points, yep. how, you know, the Boeing capabilities fit into that. Mm-hmm. And then if you think you have something there that can enhance that or fill a void in some way, we're all ears. Um, I spend a good amount of my time uh, visiting companies that are out there that we feel like may be able to make a difference for us. Yep. And I think the, the one thing that I would add there is to, to go back to that combination of what is it that the end user needs, what is it that your partner needs, both from a, from a capability perspective, but also a, a capital and a business model perspective, and how do you put that argument together? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. Well, Steve, thank you so much for, for sharing your story and, and, and your time with us today. Um, good, good luck with the next 100 years of Boeing. Yeah, thank you very much, Ben, and I uh, uh, really enjoyed it and welcome to come back anytime. Happy to come back anytime. To hear more from the National Security Startup Series, go to startups.cnas.org or search for CNAS on iTunes or SoundCloud.